Hello and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Today we begin the Progressive Era. Jinan has been alluding to this for some time now. And over the next few podcasts, we will be covering many programs that transform society. Today, we will discuss the impacts of Jacob Rees, who was the author of How the Other Half Lives, Ida Tarbell. We will discuss settlement houses with our guest, Katie Vogel, over at Henry Street. But before I let Jeannie take it away, I want to know if I look as cozy as I feel in my new white velour tracksuit. It's called a sweatsito. I noticed it. I didn't want to say anything, but you're you're looking especially dapper today. It's like wearing a hug. It's very cozy. It's you like can... wearing a hug. So this was a birthday gift, and I had never heard of this brand, so I looked it up. The website is fabulous. Sweatsito.com. Men's and women's styles. Unbelievable. I called up and I got a promo code um, for 10% off for all of our listeners, but you have to type in history10, that's lowercase history, with the number 10, and you can get 10% off on your very own Sweatsito. And when your friends are insanely jealous, tell them to listen to U.S. History Repeated, and it's called the Sweatsito. And now, Jeannie, you can take it away. All right. So today, we are going to begin our discussion on the progressive era. There is just so much to discuss for this time period that it would be impossible to talk about it all in one or even two podcasts. So the next few podcasts, we're all going to be talking about the progressive era, which takes place from roughly 1890 to 1920. And this is a big chunk of time in American history where we see unprecedented growth and changes to American society. It's also important for me to mention that, you know, without World War One, things like women's suffrage and prohibition might not have been passed when they were. It is during this time period where we see a variety of reforms or changes being made at the local, state, and federal levels of government. Progressives came from a variety of backgrounds and socioeconomic classes within American society. They tended to have very different areas within society that they hoped to change. What they did have in common, you know, was the belief that society needed to be changed. During the progressive era, we also see a number of amendments added to the Constitution. The 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th amendments are all progressive era amendments. The progressive era was not a unified movement. You have a number of social problems within society that are being brought to light through the work of what was referred to as muckrakers. And muckrakers were journalists, writers, reporters, whatever you want to call them, who exposed problems within society. Jacob Rees is probably one of the most famous of the muckrakers. His book, How the Other Half Lives, became a national best-selling book. He understood the plight of the poor immigrant because he was one. He was a Danish immigrant that came to the United States when he was 21 years old. He was homeless and without a job. He spent the first few years he was in the United States without a home and working you know, odd jobs here and there when he could find them. And he eventually got a steady job as a reporter. 
as a reporter, he worked and documented life in some of the poorest neighborhoods in New York City. New York City was the most densely populated city in the United States. His work as a police reporter allowed him the opportunity to become friends with Teddy Roosevelt, who at the time was president of the New York City Police Board. And they went into these different lodging houses. And and this is a direct quote from Jacob Reese. And he says, such lodging houses have caused more destitution, more beggary and more crime than any other agency I know of. Usually the 10 and 7 cent per night lodgings are different grades of the same abomination, some sort of an apology for a bed with a mattress and blanket represents the aristocratic purchase of the tramp who by a lucky stroke of beggary has exchanged the chance of an empty box or ash barrel for shelter on the quality floor of one of those hotels. Now understand hotel, the term is being used very loosely here. Jacob Reese knew from personal experience how awful these lodging houses were. It was after he was robbed and his dog was killed in one of them that he became a social activist. The worst conditions were actually in the police run lodging houses. Reese took then Commissioner Roosevelt on a tour of the lodging houses and Roosevelt had them closed down. That's how bad they were. In our podcast on Theodore Roosevelt, I discussed how you know, TR would go on tours of police beats, oftentimes with Jacob Reese, who knew the neighborhoods well. And Roosevelt, you know, worked to clean up not only the police board, the the police force, but New York City as well. Jacob Reese, his book, it started out as an 1889, 18-page newspaper article for Scribner's Magazine. And in 1890, the book was published. It is one of the earliest examples of photojournalism. And in his book, How the Other Half Lives, Jacob Rees wrote the following. Long ago, it was said that one half of the world does not know how the other half lives. That was true then. It did not know because it did not care. The half that was on top cared little for the struggles and less for the fate of those who were underneath, so long as it was able to hold them there and keep its own seat. There came a time when the discomfort and consequent upheavals so violent that it was no longer an easy thing to do, and then the upper half fell to inquiring what was the matter. Information on the subject has been accumulating rapidly since. And the whole world has had its hands full answering for its old ignorance. And again, that's Jacob Reese and how the other half lives. If you think about it, you know, the same could be said for today. You know, if you are very well to do, you don't really know what it's like to be poor. You don't know what it's like to send your children to bed hungry. You don't know what it's like barely scraping by. And, you know, today there's very little that people know if you haven't lived it or you you don't understand if you haven't lived it. Would you agree with that, Jim? Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with it. And um, 
you know, we grew up, my children are growing up very different from the way I did in Brooklyn and you did. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, but I, I think I got involved in volunteerism. We, we grew up in a very much like middle-class family, but I was much older until I realized how difficult it is for many people. And, you know, we were by no means rich. For those of you listening who don't know, Jimmy and I are, are siblings. We, we were not rich by any means. You know, I, I never grew up feeling like we didn't have things, you know, but mom and dad weren't wealthy, but we were certainly much better off than many other people, you know, well, it was, it was different for even you, you're 10 years younger than me. Yeah. So, you know, we, there were seven people in the house, one bathroom. Right. And, um, I went down into the basement when I was 19, where there was no heat because there was, they need room. <laughs> Yeah. But you think about it, like how we grew up is different from how our parents grew up. You know, mom and her siblings always spoke of my grandparents having to buy groceries on credit and they would all argue over who would get to go to the store to be able to pay the bill, the food bill from, you know, the the merchant from the marketplace. And the, the man who owned the grocery store was always so happy when my grandmother would pay the bill because, you know, not everybody who bought on credit paid their bills, but my grandmother always did. Maybe took her a little while, but she always paid and they would give, you know, mom or or aunts a cookie or a treat as a thank you for, for paying. And that's something that is foreign to us. It's something that's certainly foreign to our children, you know, I think each generation tries to do a little bit better and a little bit better. But you're talking about a time period where most people in the cities throughout the country lived in squalor and they lived in really tough conditions. And Jacob Reese, he's known as one of the first photojournalists and he he takes photographs and he prints these images and no longer could people say, well, I didn't know. Nobody told me. How was I supposed to know? Because here it was in print. And he oh, yeah, you're used- putting it, you're putting it right in their faces for them to see. They can't ignore it. Right. Exactly. And he uses flash photography, which is still very much in its early stages and pretty dangerous at this time. He was actually almost blinded once. Um, and the explosions that were necessary to take those photographs, of course, were fire hazards. But Reese wrote about and he showed through photographs just how bad conditions were in tenements you know, in factories, casting a spotlight on child labor. He showed images of rag pickers who sifted through mountains of garbage at local dumps who, you know, would look for rags that could be resold. Many of the people who worked as rag pickers, they also lived at the dump and they slept near those mountains of garbage. Many of them children you know, the book, How the Other Half Lives, is not without its critics. Reese used common racial slurs and stereotypes that existed during that time. But his work got people talking and it helped to spur reform. So people like Jacob Reese, Lillian Wald, who we're going to hear about more in a few minutes, and, you know, a number of other reformers, they advocated for new housing designs, different dwelling spaces that needed ventilation and windows You have the Tenement House Commission and the Tenement House Department, which were created as a result of this work. And they describe tenements as infant slaughterhouses. You know, infant mortality rates were so high, and it's believed one in five infants died. 
diseases spread rapidly and often caused epidemics of cholera, typhoid, and, you know, a host of horrible diseases. Well, we've come a long way as a society since then, but these are some of the programs and, and people that started to turn heads, I guess. Yes. So you have these reformers who are advocating for things like open air parks for playgrounds to be built so that the general public had access to clean and open air spaces. Lincoln Steffens, for example, he's another muckraking journalist who's less known than Jacob Reese. He wrote the book Shame of the Cities in 1902. And in that book, he exposed the corruption of city governments. He traveled to a number of cities, you know, places like Minneapolis, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Chicago, Philadelphia, and of course, New York. And in each place, he uncovered a variety of examples of corruption within these local city governments and, you know, their respective agencies. He talked about the need for the average person to take notice of what is happening around them, that ignorance does not allow one to be innocent. And that's an interesting idea that ignorance does not allow one to be innocent. Ignorance is bliss. Well, but you can't say, well, I didn't know. We didn't look or or I'm just going to turn the other way. I don't want to I don't want to see it. It's up too upsetting, you know, or what can I do? So, yes, you have political machines and wealthy businessmen looking to control the strings that are to blame. But so, too, is the average person who allows this corruption to continue, whether knowingly or unknowingly. You have Ida Tarbell, who is another heavy hitter in the progressive era. She was a journalist most known for helping to bring down Standard Oil, which is John Rockefeller's monopoly. Her father was in the oil business and like many other, you know, smaller oil companies was ruined by Standard Oil's tactics. Her articles were originally printed in McClure's magazine, which was a very popular magazine of the time period, and that magazine focused on you know, a host of political topics. Now, wait, were they, were they, um, their tactics, were they like predatory? Well, we, we talked about this in our podcasts on big business, but a lot of times what big business owners like John Rockefeller would do is they would drop their prices so drastically that it would force their competitors into financial ruin. They just simply couldn't match their prices. And then As companies would go under, he would buy them up and buy them up and buy them up. So she was known for taking what was typically a complex topic for the average reader to understand and explain it in a way that made it digestible. She was an excellent writer. She wrote on a variety of topics, not just progressive issues. She also wrote, you know, major biographies on historical figures. I mean, we're talking people like Napoleon Bonaparte and Abraham Lincoln, just to give you an example of the scope of her work. Her series of 19 different articles on Standard Oil were well-researched and they included interviews with top figures in the industry. And she was successful in exposing their corrupt business tactics. And in 1911, Standard Oil was broken apart. Her articles, which were later published in a book, Ida Tarbell stated the following about Rockefeller. She says, Rockefeller and his associates did not build the Standard Oil Company in the boardrooms of Wall Street banks. They fought their way to control by rebate and drawback, bribe and blackmail, espionage and price cutting by ruthless efficiency of organization. 
any discussion of the progressive era would be incomplete without talking about settlement houses. Settlement houses were key players in the progressive era and often served as the driving force behind many changes within society. Settlement houses would immerse themselves in the city in which they were located. They lived there. They got to know the people and they were able to see the areas that were of the utmost need of attention or change in neighborhoods. And then they got to work on fix on fixing the issues at hand. Henry Street Settlement is have you ever heard of Henry Street Settlement, Jim? I did through you in preparation for this podcast. And but went prior through- to that. No, I had not. I had not. I, I listened to the the snippets that I guess we're going to play shortly, but I also went through their website and it's very, very, it's a very good one. I'm, I'm in the website business, but this is a very, very well done. A lot of information here on, on who they are, what they do, the impact the programs. And, and funny when I went over and I hovered over, get involved, I saw uh, friends with benefits. So I clicked on that just to see what that was. And that is the best way for you to give and join with an annual membership. So yeah. So check out Henry Street Settlement. So Henry Street Settlement was originally known as Nurses Settlement, and it was established by a young nurse named Lillian Wald in New York City. She came from a fairly well-to-do family. She was educated at Women's Medical College. She moved into a tenement apartment with the goal of helping the people of the Lower East Side of Manhattan. It was through her experience of volunteering to teach a course to the local poor about home health care that she saw firsthand the great need in providing health care services to the city's you know, neediest citizens. The poor were often overlooked and neglected when it came to medical care. If you couldn't afford to pay the doctor, the doctor left. I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to talk about the importance of volunteerism, you know, going out into the world and giving of your time and your talents to help others is not only a benefit to the people that you help, but to yourself, you know, some of the greatest life lessons I have learned came from when I was volunteering and meeting and speaking with people I might otherwise never have met. You know, my time volunteering in soup kitchens and and food banks are are some of my really greatest memories of growing up and being in high school and being in college. I met people and spoke to people I would have never met otherwise, you know, and seeing people who really don't have much of anything who are willing to give to others before most people who have more than what they need are willing to give. You know, it was also through volunteerism that I realized my passion for teaching. You know, consider giving of your time to a local charity, to a neighborhood organization, a food bank, a soup kitchen. Time is the most precious thing that we can give to somebody else because we give it without knowing how much of it we have, right? And not to get on my soapbox, but it's the truth. So volunteer, give of your time, invest in the community in which you live and see the changes that are needed and do what you can. However small or insignificant it may seem, 
It just might make a world of difference to someone else of your community. So that's my little bit of soapbox today. Get out and and volunteer. On today's podcast, we are joined by Katie Vogel. She's the historian at Henry Street Settlement. So thank you for taking the time to join us today, Ms. Vogel. Hello, I'm Katie Vogel. I work as the public historian at Henry Street Settlement. I'll discuss a little bit about the life and work of Lillian Wald. Lillian Wald is not nearly as well known as she should be. She made so many contributions to the fields of public health and social reform. And she made so many contributions that touch our daily lives as especially New Yorkers. She was an activist on so many different fronts. She fought for the rights of immigrants and fought for women's right to vote. She was a big advocate of children in many different ways through fighting for child labor laws and free school lunches and special education classes and school nurses. She also fought for the rights of African-Americans. She was a co-founder of the NAACP, which had its first meeting in the dining room here at Henry Street's headquarters. So her work is very expansive, and she decided to start Henry Street Settlement at the turn of the 20th century in order to fill in the gaps that the government was not providing to residents. So at this time, at the turn of the 20th century, it's a time of massive change in New York City and across the country, increased immigration, immigrants arriving by the thousands every day to New York, and the city just changing so rapidly. And as people are arriving, they are seeking community and support in these predominantly immigrant neighborhoods like the Lower East Side. And, you know, their communities and their religious communities and families and neighbors are helping each other. But there are no kinds of government safety nets. So, of course, we're still having conversations today about what kind of support the government should provide But at that time, there were not things like public housing or unemployment insurance or um, or food stamps. And so people are really going to their communities for their for these kind of supports. But settlement houses were helping to fill in these gaps by providing direct services to immigrant and to low income communities. And so Henry Street Settlement was part of this whole movement of settlement houses who were doing this work. And Lillian Wald um, decided, you know, to move to the Lower East Side, which was at the time the most crowded neighborhood in the world, and to provide free and affordable health care to anyone who needed it. And so Henry Street started as really a visiting nurses service, these nurses going into people's homes to provide care. And then as these nurses were getting to know the families in their homes, they're identifying a whole range of needs beyond nursing care. And so it's really moving into more social work and they're providing all kinds of supports like helping people find jobs and helping kids in school in a variety of different ways and hosting all kinds of classes and clubs on site at Henry Street as well. So that was the origins of Henry Street and Henry Street still exists today, 129 years later, which I'll discuss a little bit more about. Why did Lillian Wald create the Henry Street Settlement and what areas within society did she hope to improve? 
Henry Street Settlement was founded in 1893 by Lillian Wald, and the reason why she created Henry Street was to provide affordable health care to the neighborhood at a time when this is the most crowded neighborhood in the world. And Lillian Wald at the time was enrolled in medical school and decided to leave medical school in order to move to the Lower East Side and provide nursing care to the community. And the impetus for that change was that she was teaching a class on the Lower East Side, a wellness class to immigrant mothers. And one day a little girl interrupted her class. It was the daughter of one of her students. And she told Wald that her mother was dying in a nearby tenement. She was hemorrhaging after childbirth. And the doctor who was caring for her had just left because she couldn't continue to pay the medical bills. So Lillian Wald followed this little girl to her family's home and saw that this woman was left to die. And um, Lillian Wald was really confronted with the reality of poverty. And this was really the first time that she had really been confronted with this reality. She grew up in a very privileged home and she calls it a baptism of fire, which is basically a wake up call for her. And so she decided to leave the world of academia and she moved to the Lower East Side to provide direct service to the community and provide healthcare and nursing care to anyone who needed it, which was provided on a sliding scale. And Henry Street's work moves far beyond the realm of nursing care and they get into all kinds of social work. At Henry Street's headquarters, which is where Lillian Wald lived and where the nurses who are providing the care to the community, the visiting nurses, are living as well. They set up all kinds of programs, including a library and classes like parenting classes and English classes and help finding employment and then arts classes as well and just a whole range of programs. And they were really seeking to serve the whole person, right? Thinking of a person not just as, you know, treating their sickness if they're sick, but thinking about wellness and well-being in a much more holistic way, much more bird's eye view way. And part of that thinking was to take the onus off of an individual if they're sick or if they're poor and to say it's, it's not their fault. It is society's problem, right? And that there are ways to change the conditions of a neighborhood and things like sanitation and if somebody is overworked, right? All of those things can be changed through laws and through protections. And so Lillian Wald, although she was a nurse, she and a social worker at a time before you could get a social work degree, she was also an advocate and an activist on so many fronts. And that was a really important part of the work as well, because she thought it was not enough to just provide direct service that you also had to fight for structural change for these problems to be solved. I'm always surprised at how little people know about Lillian Wald because, you know, she made such a difference to New York City. In fact, most fellow New Yorkers I know, unless you live in the Lower East Side, neighborhood, you don't know of Henry Street settlement. How did the settlement house improve the living conditions 
of the poor of New York City. Wald lived at 265 Henry Street, the headquarters of Henry Street Settlement, and this was a building that was donated by her lifelong friend and confidant, Jacob Schiff, who was a banker and the main philanthropist of Henry Street. So Wald moved into this building in 1895, two years after she began this nursing service where she was, you know, going into people's homes, serving the community. By 1895, they had a permanent headquarters. And so she moved in and she hired visiting nurses who also lived at the settlement. And this was the original idea of a settlement house, was to live in the neighborhood that you're serving. And the idea of that was to actually be neighbors with the people you're serving and to be closer to the problems to understand the problems better. And Wald was very conscious of not coming in and just imposing her values. She thought it was very important to listen and to treat people with dignity and respect, especially no matter how much money they had, and to really treat the neighborhood like it was already already had a culture, it already had a way of operating, and she just wanted to listen and see what people needed help with. And she calls this, um, in her memoir, she talks about lending her citizenship, which is basically like coming to lend her privilege that she grew up with as someone who grew up in an affluent home and someone who grew up and was born in the United States. And so Lillian Wald lives on site with um, these nurses and they are mostly a community of women. They are meeting in the mornings and in the evenings to discuss their cases and discuss their patients. They have, you know, the house is really abuzz with people coming in and out all day, neighbors coming for classes and coming for clubs that that they're offering here at Henry Street. And they have visitors all the time as well. People who are politicians and leaders in social reform and civil rights coming from really all over the world to participate in conversations. Wald was known for these dinners that she would host, where she would bring together, especially people with money and political sway, to meet directly with neighbors. And she was a big supporter of the labor movement that was happening on the Lower East Side at the turn of the 20th century, especially by providing space for union organizers and labor organizers to meet. And She was also a co-founder of the NAACP who had their first meeting in Henry Street's dining room at the headquarters in May of 1909. And so people like Eleanor Roosevelt visited and Amelia Earhart and, you know, local politicians. And later on, after Lillian Wald's time, Rosa Parks was a visitor in the 50s. So people were attracted to Henry Street to, for all the work that they were doing here and came to discuss public health and social reform and activism and civil rights. Lillian Wald called the people that you know she was working alongside and who helped her start Henry Street, she called them her family with a capital F. And some of these people she was lifelong friends with, some of these people lived at Henry Street for decades. And these were really the people who were her support system on a daily basis. And I think that's so interesting that she uses that term, the family. Lillian Wald was not married. She, we know of a few romantic relationships that she had with women. One person was Mabel Hyde Kittredge, who helped her found the school lunch program 
in New York, and one was Helen Arthur, who was a lawyer. And Lillian Wald did not call herself a lesbian or gay or queer. This was the turn of the 20th century, and even if those terms existed at that time, they weren't used in the same way that they are today, in the same way to describe identity. But we do know that she was a queer person, and that is an important part of the story to tell, especially because it wouldn't have been safe to be out during her lifetime. And, you know, that's um, something that we're trying to lift up more here at Henry Street and talk about that as part of our history of Henry Street and of Lillian Wald. So interesting. I didn't know that about Lillian Wald. The work begun by Lillian Wald, you know, lives on today through the more than 50 programs offered by Henry Street Settlement. Could you discuss some of the programs and how people can best support the mission of your organization? Henry Street today is 129 years old, and we're still carrying on the legacy started by Lillian Wald in 1893. Henry Street today has 18 sites around the Lower East Side neighborhood and we still have our original headquarters, which was the home of Lillian Wald and the visiting nurses. And today that's our administrative headquarters. And then we have 17 other sites around the neighborhood that have all of Henry Street's programs. So today, Henry Street serves about 50,000 New Yorkers every year in healthcare and social services and the arts. And I'll talk a little bit about a few of our, our programs or program areas. So we have transitional and supportive housing. We also have health and wellness, which focuses mostly on mental health services through our community consultation center and school-based mental health programs. We have senior services, which includes a really wide variety of different kinds of programs, including our senior center and Meals on Wheels. We have education services, so we have a daycare and we have after-school programs and college access, a lot of different programs within education. We have employment help, which helps people find jobs and does job skills training. And also, this is where our ESOL programs are, English language classes. And we also have our Abrams Art Center. So just like at Lillian Wald's time, Henry Street, you know, has this emphasis on arts and humanities as well. Again, in thinking about the full person and well-being in a much more holistic way than just providing, um, you know, health care. So the Art Center has all different kinds of classes in theater and dance and music and visual arts. So today, just like at Lillian Wald's time, Henry Street is thinking about the full person and really seeks to integrate our programs to address whatever people need help with in our neighborhood and in the five boroughs. So, you know, there you have it. You know, work begun in the last century is still very much needed today. The programs provided by organizations like Henry Street are a lifeline for thousands of New Yorkers. You know, New York wasn't the only city with settlement houses. They were in most major cities. And it would be incomplete to discuss the role of settlement houses of the progressive era and not talk about Jane Addams and Hull House in Chicago. Jane Addams was the daughter of a wealthy businessman and a state senator. She lived what some would call a privileged life. 
Her visit to a London settlement house inspired her to build one in Chicago, Illinois. And in 1889, she co-founded Hull House along with Ellen Gates Starr. Like many others, Jane Addams was college educated and as a woman was unable to get a job in a field that she was certainly qualified for, but doors were closed to women. Middle to upper class educated women could and did take their talents and use them to improve a variety of social problems within society. Jane Addams said there is nothing after disease, indigence, and guilt so fatal to life itself as the want of a proper outlet for active faculties. Settlement work provided women with an opportunity to use their skills. Indigence is that SAT word. It means a state of extreme poverty. There you go. Mm -hmm. At Hull House, they taught a variety of classes in literature, art, music, English classes, technical skills. They provided daycare for children. Hull House was home to a number of progressive era leaders. You know, Florence Kelly worked to bring an end to child labor and the poor working conditions that existed in factories. A more appropriate term would be to refer to them as sweatshops. You know, factories were terrible. Her detailed reports of life for child laborers exposed, you know, cruel, dangerous, and really just unhealthy conditions that the children of Illinois were living and working in. You have young children because they were small operating or fixing heavy machinery. You have children losing limbs, losing their eyesight. You have children who are malnourished. You know, during this time period, it's estimated that over 40% of children in the United States were dying before their, before their fifth birthday because of unsanitary living conditions, you know, lack of food, lack of healthy food. Her work inspired the passing of laws which limited the workday for women to eight hours and banned children in Illinois under the age of 14 from working. And Kelly moved to New York and worked with Lillian Wald, who we heard of earlier at Henry Street Settlement. Okay, so we knew that we were going to need to break the progressive era into a number of podcasts. This is probably a good place to stop. We will pick up and continue to learn about other programs that help society evolve in our next segment of the progressive era. I believe we will be delving into child labor and labor laws. I do want to add a special thank you to Katie Vogel, the public historian over at Henry Street. Thanks for joining us today and look forward to talking to you the next time. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.